You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello and welcome back to the BBC Science Focus podcast. I'm Dan Bennett, the editor of BBC Science Focus magazine. In today's episode, I'm speaking to Elliot Higgins, the founder of Bellingcat. If you haven't heard that name before, then you might be surprised to know that Bellingcat is behind some of the biggest news revelations of the decade. They use social media and information freely available online to carry out what they call open source investigation. Their work has uncovered the use of chemical weapons in Syria, identified suspects in the Skripal poisoning in Salisbury, and identified the people responsible for downing flight MH17. Today, Elliot's speaking to me about his new book, We Are Bellingcat, which tells the story of how a group of amateur hobbyists ended up taking on Russian spies. So um, today we're a small um, non-profit NGO. We have about 20 staff members. And what we do is something called online open source investigation. So that's using material that's available online from social media posts to satellite imagery on services like Google Maps to investigate all kinds of different incidents from war crimes in Syria to Russian poisonings to stolen animals to wildlife crimes, all kinds of different subjects. And we've existed now since 2014 um where it began ban, it was basically my blog then and then we had like sixty thousand pounds of crowdfunding myself and some volunteers and it's just kind of grown from there and so you you know you say you're involved in, in investigations but i mean you, you've you've broken huge stories over the past few years i mean there's um obviously people might be familiar with flight m817 um what are the, what are some of the kind of crucial pieces of evidence that you've you've been able to shine a light on over the, the last few years? So our first big investigation would have been into MH17, which is really where our kind of investigation team formed, which is a group of volunteers that most of which have become staff now. But um, that, we first of all, we tracked the missile launcher that um, was believed to have shot it down through eastern Ukraine, through separatist hell territory, to the launch site where the missile was believed to be launched from and found evidence that that was the place it was launched from. We then identified the same missile launcher in a convoy in Russia a few weeks earlier that had headed to the Ukrainian border. Then we started identifying individuals who were on phone calls published by the uh, criminal investigation, the joint investigation team, and by the Ukrainian security services who didn't have names, but we figured out who they were based off the contents of the calls. Um, And they turned out to be Russian military officers and intelligence officers along with other people. Um, So that was kind of showing that Russia was involved with killing 298 people in this uh, attack on this aircraft. We then, um, other big stories have been looking at the use of chemical weapons in Syria. We've identified the uh, real identities of the people involved with the Skripal assassinations, as well as other people involved with that assassination and other Russian intelligence uh, assassinations in Europe. We've also identified Russia's secret nerve agent program um, through that investigation. And that then led us to the um, FSB, this domestic Russian intelligence team, who um, tried to assassinate um, Navalny, the opposition leader in Russia in August last year. And that's led us to even more uh, assassinations and attempted assassinations by the same FSB team, seemingly using the same nerve agents that were used in the Skripal poisonings and uh, other 
poisonings in Europe. We've also, we do other subjects. It's not just Russia. We've looked into things like um, border uh, pushbacks by Frontex in the Mediterranean, which is now part of an EU investigation. We've published about the illegal wildlife trade in Dubai um, and a whole range of different subjects, in particular the um, far right in Europe and in the US. It's a, it's a jaw-dropping spectrum of investigations, but, but just to pull back for a minute, um, although you become experts in what you do now, you know, you're not professional investigators. Like you're not you're not what people would traditionally think of when they think of an intelligence agent, uh, an intelligence agency like the CIA or uh, MI6. Yeah, we, we're kind of just really, we, we're keen amateurs who had their hobbies get out of hand. So it's, it's like the Russia stuff. All these Russian poisonings are basically the work of one person who's just really focuses on th- this kind of evidence and working in that particular way on those stories. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, often, you know, our investigations aren't included, you know, it might be 20 people in our staff, but that might be one or two people working on each investigations. But also, we're part of a broader community that's both a uh, kind of community of experts, you know, journalists, people working at NGOs, maybe military and arms experts, uh, chemical weapons experts, but also members of the public who we connect to through social media. And I'm a very kind of online person, so I was always had that community around me. But when we started doing this work, because it's using open source information, anyone can join in and look at it. It also means that anyone can also be part of the investigation because it's a very clear and transparent process of how you come to your conclusion. So around Bellingcat's mm. work, there's been this community growing that we're often kind of using in investigations, kind of crowdsourcing answers to uh, certain questions or helping them find certain material or some people might figure out where something was filmed and then be able to explain it and then we can kind of use that as part of the investigation. So for us, collaboration is really core to what we're doing at kind of every single level. And you've been since you've been involved in some incredibly sophisticated projects. But just just to uh, rewind a little, can you explain how you initially got involved in this? And and at the core of that, explain uh, to our listeners what what is an open source investigation. So really going back to when I started this, before I started doing this kind of work, I was basically just, you know, I worked working in admin jobs. I had no specialization in investigation or journalism or anything, really. Um, But I I was spending a lot of time on the internet arguing with people about what was happening in the world. And at the time, in 2010, that was the um, Arab Spring. So um, in 2011, I was kind of on the Guardian Middle East Live blog, arguing with people every day and, you know, looking for links and just being interested in what was happening but something that came up was people would share videos and everyone would argue about whether they were real or not but no one actually tried to figure out if they were kind of genuine if they were where they were being filmed so i had a video it was um in a place called tg in libya or supposedly the rebels say they had said they had just captured this town and the video was basically a uh, tank rolling down a road with two wide lanes of traffic a mosque next to the road and various buildings. So I thought, well, maybe I can find this road and mosque on satellite imagery. So I, I went to Google Maps, found the t- town very easily, just TG Libya is the first thing that came up. And when I looked at the satellite map, it was very clear there was a major road running through the middle of it. So I zoomed in and it was two lanes of traffic. It was divided by a divider, just like the one in the video. And I followed it along and there was a mosque on the road with a dome and a minaret that was identical to the one that I could see in the video. And then I watched the video again. I started looking at smaller details like the um, walls that were around the mosque and the um, curve of the road and the uh, utility poles that were visible. You could see them on the satellite imagery casting shadows. So you could see where they were. 
And by comparing these smaller and smaller details, I could be more and more sure that this was exactly the location they claimed it was. So then I could kind of go back and, you know, win the internet argument about where this video was actually filmed. So <laughs> it kind of started there, but I just found it really fascinating you could do this. And I, I was just really interested in what was happening in, in Libya and just frustrated the reporting was so focused on the kind of um, perspective of the journalist on the ground. Whilst there was so much information that was being shared online from a range of different sources, um, that was just being ignored because people felt they couldn't verify it or they were like, well, it's a YouTube video. What does that tell us? It's not a news report from a reporter on the ground. But if you actually examined them and analysed them mm. and put them into context with other information and verified what you could see, it actually gave you a much more granular view of the conflict. So you could actually see where the front lines were, where the fighting was occurring on each day, so I, I just kept doing it. And um, in early 2012, I decided to start a blog, not with any intent of it being anything more than a place where I could put my kind of thoughts and write stuff down. But I also was seeing so many people who were using these videos already basically being conspiracy theorists. They were turning up on these conspiracy websites where there'd be like some white guy in the background of the video and they'd be saying, there's the CIA agent who's working with the Libyan rebels to overthrow Gaddafi. <laughs> and usually it was like some journalist or something who had just wandered into shot. But I wanted to write about what I could see, not what my opinions were. So I started writing about yeah. videos from Syria showing the weapons that were being used. Because I didn't speak Arabic, so there's no, no point in me listening to what they were saying because I wouldn't know. But I could see the weapons. <laughs> and then I used online resources to um, you know, identify the weapons. And I posted about that. And then people who were interested in weapons started to talk to me, people from NGOs. When I posted about cluster bombs, Human Rights Watch started asking questions like, where did you get these videos from? Can you find more of them? Then it just kind of slowly progressed step by step until 2013, where I came across weapons that I'd never seen before from the former Yugoslavia. And I had was in contact with a New York Times journalist. I shared it with them. And they went off and said, um, you've spoken to US officials. And they're saying this is part of a secret Saudi smuggling operation that I had stumbled across on YouTube videos posted by the rebels themselves. And that then led to me getting a lot more kind of attention in the media because this was such a new thing that someone could use YouTube videos to expose the Saudi arms, you know, smuggling operation. And it just kind of grew and grew from there. And then in 2014, that's when Bellingcat was launched. So, so when did you decide to quit your day job? And, and what mm. convinced you that it was time to take this full time? Well, in 2012, I had this blog called the um, Brown Moses blog, which was named after a Frank Zappa song, and I'd been using that name as a pseudonym online. Then um, when um, in 2013, I published this story about the arms, I, I got loads of media attention. I had the Guardian interview me first, and then um, I had like CNN come along talking about the stay-at-home Mr. Mom who was at home looking after his kid and finding weapons <laughs> in the conflict in Syria, which was not a frame I enjoyed, but nevertheless. But I was still working full-time then. But I was just coming to a period when my, um, basically the company I was working for was having redundancies and I was kind of the chopping block. And I had uh, a company approach me saying, would you like to, uh, it was like a business intelligence company, you know, finding out if all your oil workers are going to be attacked by Al-Qaeda and that kind of thing. <laughs> and they said, we'd like you to work for us. And they offered a fairly you know, decent wage, more than I was being paid before. But they said, you have to stop doing your blog. And at that time, I was getting more and more kind of media attention. And I thought, well... I need to pay my mortgage, so I'm just going to sell on Twitter. I can't do it. But I, I said that. I've got to stop doing what I'm doing. But then lots of people said, why don't you crowdfund it? So I thought that was a good idea, which right. it probably wasn't, but <laughs> I did it anyway. Um, <laughs> and it was, you know, I scraped like £12,000 um, together for that crowdfunding. And that allowed me to start working on it like all, full time. And um, I, I kind of then... Um, 
started meeting more and more kind of activists who were like really like blown away with what you could do with this work, people from NGOs being asked to speak at events about my work. Um, and then that kind of um, by two, uh, led me to the August 21st, 2013 sound attacks, where I kind of found myself in the position of having way more information about what happened than anyone else, because I just was watching the YouTube videos and figuring out where all the rockets had landed and the munitions that were used. And I reckon I recognized the rockets as being used previously by the Syrian government and this kind of came into sharp focus when Seymour Hirsch did an article for the London Review of Books where he basically said it was a false flag it was jihadi rebels using sarin from Turkey to um, do a false flag to draw the US into conflict and I was like looking at these videos saying that's clearly just complete rubbish so I wrote about that and Seymour Hirsch was not very happy, but a lot of journalists saw that as a kind of clash between old journalism versus new journalism. But for me, it was never really (laughs) about being against something, but having a new way to investigate things that could complement traditional forms of journalism. And then I just kind of got more and more well-known. And then in July 2014, I crowdfunded a launch of a new website, Bellingcat, where it would give people a place they could publish articles using open source investigations, but also offered resources to people to learn how to do it. And um, yeah, and then three days later, mm. Malaysian Airlines flight MH17 was shot down. And that became a huge, our first really right. kind of huge story and a massive catalyst for Bellingcat and open source investigation in general. So there's there's a there's a ton there that I just want to tease apart. But um, so f- first off, can I just pick up on one thing that probably gets asked a lot? Um, Bellingcat. Where does the name come from? Um, it's from um, Belling the Cat, which is a fable about a group of mice who are very scared of a large cat, and they come up with the idea of putting a bell around its neck, but they don't have a plan to put the bell on the cat's neck. So <laughs> we're kind of teaching people how to bell the cat. And you know, you, you gave us a short version there of the full sequence of events um, that you know are in the, the full the full sequences in the book. Um, but I just want to clarify. You know, the, the, everything you were able to do, um, like I've identified the missiles and, and the location they were sent from, it wasn't it wasn't through any kind of specially trained computer skills or hacking. These these were discoveries uh, you and your team made via information that was you know just freely out there on the internet. You just you just had to find it. It's a combination of things. I mean, initially when it was shot down, these videos and photographs emerged online, basically just through loads of people searching for videos and photographs related to it, of uh, book missile launches. So you had this kind of online Twitter community of people who just wanted to find stuff about it, like you do about any event nowadays. And um, they showed this book missile launcher, but the question was, where was these photographs and videos taken? So one example is there's a picture of uh, this missile launcher on a low loader going through a town, a photograph taken from like a garage forecourt and um a guy called eric toller came to me saying i kind of think i know where it is and he explained he had used a shop sign in the background in um russian he had then used that to um basically googled it and the name of towns in eastern ukraine he then found uh, a match which was a court document where there'd been a fight in the shop which gave the full address which then pointed him to this location but also discovered um dashboard camera videos someone had uploaded online of them driving around eastern ukraine past this same location so you then not only had the satellite imagery but actual video footage from the ground it just because someone had a hobby of filming stuff on their dashboard camera putting it on youtube YouTube and listing the streets had gone down. So we were then able to find, um, you know, video footage of the same location. And when we published that, 
um, journalists who were on the ground saw that and actually went to the same location and interviewed the locals who confirmed that there was a missile launcher there. And someone even took a photograph from exactly the same spot, right. recreating the scene. So that was that's always been an interesting interplay now between what we're doing and what people on the ground are able to do with the information. Or Because we're so transparent and we're using open source evidence, people can look at what we're doing and say, oh, actually, I might have a go at you know looking into this bit of it myself and expand on our work. And that's kind of always been the nature of what we're doing with Bad and Cat because... I understand that it's often it's about networks of people and it's not just about you know connecting to people and you know to work together but also putting the information out there that if someone sees what you're doing they're able to pick it up and do something themselves with it and they might do that publicly they might do it privately but it, in a way it keeps that information kind of alive after you've published it it's always about what can be done with that information mm. not what we've done with it and so I'm curious because so as we talk about it you know we talk about all the the, the big findings and the big moments, but um, I'm wondering what it's like day to day as some, someone who's doing this investigation, you know, is it, are we talking about, you know, days and days where you're just sit, you know, sifting through footage and you, you're looking for something specific. What is it like if you're one of these, um, you know, one of your contributors or even yourself in the early days where you've, you've got a puzzle that you're trying to crack. Is, is it not, I mean, is it the glamorous idea that you find this and you find this and you know, like a movie by the by, sun by the by nighttime the, the mystery solved or is it what what's that process like? I mean, it's often like very kind of intensive and it takes a long time. You're constantly kind of digging through material, but you, you're kind of looking for those kind of eureka moments where you find the one thing that actually matches, and that might take you looking for like one thousand kind of fo- you know <laughs> Facebook pages or social media profiles or photographs or videos just endlessly digging through stuff so it can be extremely time consuming but on the other hand um you know it is extremely rewarding when you find those bits of information you need that kind of help you make your cases it's just kind of digging through kind of the internet haystack looking for needles so so if someone's listening and they think you know they might want to try their hand at a bit of open source investigation what what are the risks well I mean, for one thing, when we're kind of crowdsourcing stuff, we'll, we do use that as a technique, but we've got a big audience of people who like to investigate, but we want to give them simple tasks because when you crowdsource an investigation, if it's complicated, you end up having this kind of group thing happening. It happened mm-hmm. with the Boston Reddit marathon bombing where they basically had a group of people on Reddit, hundreds yeah. of people who identified the wrong person. But because there was this kind of group think about what was a valuable crew and what wasn't, they went down the wrong paths. You're seeing the same thing happen with January 6th and identifying suspects there because there's been several individuals misidentified by groups who are 100% sure they found the right person. It's that same group thing going again. But if you give people a simple task, for example, when we've done the Europol Trace and Object Stop Child Abuse campaign, where people are being asked to identify individual objects taken from abuse imagery, like a bottle of shampoo or a bag, that's a lot easier because it's a simple task. It's like, do you know what this object is? Yes or no. So um, that's kind of better to do. So you kind of have to, you know, use that kind of audience in the right way. You also, you know, if you're dealing with footage from conflict, you will see horrific stuff. And vicarious trauma can be a big issue. So when we're working Mm -hmm. with that, we have to be kind of very aware of that. And, um, you know, I would strongly discourage people from, you know, jumping into an investigation of a war crime because if you're not prepared to see, work with that kind of material you'll see stuff that will stay with you for a long time so you also have to kind of educate people around those kind of dangers as well and also um for people sometimes people can you know who, who aren't 
you know, good investigators will just kind of build up a kind of house of cards of mistakes and, you know, come to really solid right, conclusions. Yeah. <laughs> and you, that kind of also leads into kind of the, you know, this other communities who investigate stuff online, kind of conspiracy communities, the way they operate is they, if they come to a conclusion, you know, they find evidence that contradicts what they're saying because of their kind of almost cult-like addiction to it. They'll find a reason to dismiss it or run another experiment that shows that the last experiment wasn't that ac- accurate. There's, you know, a clear example of that is in the film Behind the Curve about the flat earthers, where at the end of the film they do an experiment, prove themselves wrong, and then just really <laughs> complicate the experiment because they can't accept the results. And then they say, oh, well, it's too complicated to find an accurate result, therefore we're still right. So you've, you've kind of got to you know, use the kind of resources as a community very carefully. You've got to make sure people aren't being exposed to stuff that can be you know, damaging to mm. them too. too. Yeah, I was, I was wondering, do you see it that way? Do you, do you see that... Um, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot right now. Even we 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 report on it. A lot of talk about um, the, the failings of the internet, uh, and one of those is obviously um, the conspiracy theories that come out of it. Um, I'm going to name <laughs> one. Uh, you know, the, the QAnon, where people mm. are basically, I think, I think manipulating audiences with a with a set of dots and saying here's some things, and then letting the the public at large join them themselves and yeah. form their own conspiracies. Do, do you see yourselves as almost the opposite of that in, in a way? Um, in a sense, yeah, because I, I think what there is though, there's a fundamental distrust in traditional sources of, of authority. Lots of people mm. have that, the media, the government, medical professionals. Now, if you have that and you go online and you're looking for an alternative kind of source of authority, there are groups who will give you that. Now, those groups may be ones who focus on conspiracy theories. You might find like the alternative health community. That's not to say these people are all conspiracy theorists, but it's kind of the first step onto finding more people like mm. who have that way of thinking. If you are, say, someone who is particularly against uh, war or conflict, you'll find communities online who are saying that, you know, Assad has never done any chemical weapons attacks in his life, or actually Ukraine shot down MHM and team. So, but the kind of, um, they're all basically the same. If it's the Earth being flat, if it's QAnon being real, if it's coronavirus being Bill Gates' conspiracy to put microchips into people, if it's MHM team being shot down by uh, Ukraine, if it's chemical weapons attacks didn't happen in Syria, there's that fundamental distrust of some form of authority that they then reject. They then get drawn into communities that reinforce those opinions. They have websites, bloggers, uh, personalities, podcasts who will tell them that actually you're right and everyone outside of our community is being deceived and they're wrong. We're the only people who know the truth. So they start building up almost this heroic uh, sense of themselves that actually we're the ones who know the truth. And the people outside it, they either pull misguided fools or they're part of the conspiracy. And so mm-hmm. they start becoming detached from reality in these bubbles. And once they're there, it's very hard to reach them. So I, I think what we do have to do more as a kind of society mm-hmm. community is look at ways at how we actually engage people who are looking for alternative sources of authority in developing their own sources of authority through evidence-based investigation, which is why we do so much training, that we're looking at kind of training, you know, people who are more of a school age, university age, to do investigations. You know, tell them that actually you're not powerless. You can actually do stuff with a laptop. Because if I can sit on a laptop and expose Russian spies left, right, and mm. center, anyone can do this. There's nothing special about what we've done. There's no special spy tool that we've used. I've used Google Earth and Google searches and well, quite a lot of Google stuff. But YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, this is kind of our tools. It's not kind of some super James Bond spy machine that we're using. <laughs> um, and that's interesting because, you know, 
um, when I was reading the story and the story of how you started out, it uh, sort of resonated with me quite a lot. The kind of way you started uh, as an avid gamer, um, and um, you you were obviously doing something that I was doing at the same time, which was spending long long evenings playing online video games with groups of people and having a great time. But you know, there it, it just it, it it reminded me of the, the thing that we I guess both shared there is is kind of solving puzzles with groups of people and figuring out how to crack a problem. Is that is that something you found is similar in the the people you've worked with since in Bellingcat? Is there a sort of a type of person I suppose that is drawn to this kind of stuff? I think so. I mean, if you're the kind of person who can kind of f- find find four hours in an evening to raid a World of Warcraft uh, kind of raid and you know <laughs> keep killing the same monster over and over again until you get it right, you can. That same kind of obsession, I would say, is something that transfers mm. very well over into investigations because you need to you know, sit down and do stuff that is often fairly kind of relentless and, you know, tough and tiring and be prepared to do it, but be, you know, have that reward at the end of it of finding what you need. It's a bit more open-ended because there's no kind of monsters to slay or anything like that. But <laughs> I, I think you still need that kind of level of obsessiveness. And I, I think as well, you know, being part of those kind of online communities, um, you know, not just the kind of gaming communities, but, you know, these early online communities coming from like something awful forums, which kind of spawned 4chan and 8chan and all these terrible things. You do have mm. a better sense of how the kind of the internet works as well. Because I, I deal a lot yeah. with kind of, um, we, we get, do a lot on disinformation at, in our work because we do, um, you know, get approached by kind of policymakers who are like saying, oh, can you, you know, talk to us about disinformation? It's so much focused on the idea that this kind of stuff comes from the outside. It's coming from Russia and we're all being confused by Russia. Mm. But really it's kind of generated by these online communities and they don't get that because they haven't spent their lives on the internet they've spent their lives being serious people doing serious things i've spent my time kind of posting memes on internet forums and trying to think of funny tweets but if you're part of those communities and you come from there you actually have a much better understanding of where this is coming from why you have q why you have kind of you know all these kind of far right groups appearing on places like h channel and four channel all, all this stuff is kind of second nature to you but if you come yeah. from outside of that and you're trying to understand the problems, it just doesn't seem to make any sense. So you start thinking it must be coming from the outside because what these people believe is completely mad. So you've kind of got a... It's really hard to explain that to policymakers as well. You've got telling that, um, yeah, these Q people, they actually believe this stuff. They think it's real and they think you're the bad guy Mm. because they can't fix the problem otherwise because then they think, oh, we'll put some more money into countering disinformation with fact-checking websites. It's like, no, you need to get it at a much earlier age in a more systematic way where you can teach people, 16 to 18-year-olds, how to basically investigate stuff. And you can frame that as in journalism. But really, investigation isn't something that belongs to one particular field or another. And it doesn't belong to experts. It's, you know, it can belong to all of us. And the kind of open source investigation in particular enables that because the evidence is so transparent. We aren't relying on sources telling us stuff. We're finding videos, photographs, and other evidence that can make a very clear case. And you can use it to present a case. And if you can equip people with those skills then they won't go off finding these alternative kind of ecosystems where they're finding about how actually coronavirus is made up or that, you know, there are no chemical weapon attacks in Syria. Yeah, and that's another, I think, another point that I'd just like to touch on, which is because I suppose you, as, as uh, not not a massive fan of this term, but, you know, you're, you're native to the internet. You're, you've been around these communities and forums for a long time. Um, I think that comes out in the way that, you know, um, Bellingcat is so distinctly apolitical or almost not just apolitical, but you, 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 you know, 
you never make assertions or insinuations or anything. You're you're just about shining a light on the evidence. Is that? And and I think it, it, that's bred out of where you've come from. Is that? Yeah, I mean, everything we do is, you know, based off um, evidence. We lay it out and we explain how we came to our conclusions and we try and be quite cautious about what we're saying as well. Um, I mean, even though we do make some quite, you know, big stories, it's always based off evidence. If we can't say, I mean, we're always trying to be transparent with sources. Even when we've um, done the Russian investigations, which were actually used used, um, basically um, black market data that is very available in Russian. You can kind of find a web forum where someone's selling someone's, you know, phone records for anyone in Russia, including FSB officers, which we found. Um, And you can um, get that information quite easily, but we explained how we did that in our kind of um, our website. And what that meant is other people actually went off and brought that material to make sure we were actually telling the truth because we were being accused of being MI6, MI5, CIA, you know, the, the whole bunch of them and by the Russian government. But what Russian journalists did is they just brought the same information we did and said, no, this is actually just available. On, you know, <laughs> if you find the right internet forum, you can buy it. But we also don't even trust that by itself because it's not an open source. So we'll cross-reference those data points we find from those data sets against other independent data sources. So we have like two or three points of verification for each claim that we're making. Um, so even when it's not open source, we're being as careful as we can to verify everything that we're using. Hmm. Most recently, you hit the news for tracking down the assassins who had tried to poison the Russian opposition leader, Alexei Navalny. And then when Navalny uh, called his own assassins, um, he got them to effectively uh, pin pin themselves. Um, how How do you deal with the idea that you're potentially annoying some quite traditionally powerful people? Does it worry you? Um, do, do you worry when you've got a delivery at the door? Well, I have to be more cautious now. I mean, I mean, we've obviously exposed Russian spies, which I'll go to in a second. But like now, when I'm traveling, it's when I won't eat food in hotels. Like I won't have room service because I, I just don't know if where it's come from. At one um, at one time, I was staying at a hotel I've been staying at for quite um, a number of years, and there there was a knock on the door quite late at night at eight o'clock, and I thought, what could this be? And the door opened, and there was a guy in a suit with a name badge on, saying, "Oh, I'm I'm the the uh, manager tonight. I would like to thank you for staying ten times at our hotel." we'd like to give you some cookies and these sweets as a thank you. And I was like, uh, okay, I took him in. I thought, great, free cookies. Um, but then I thought, I have no idea who that person was. Like, you know, he was wearing a name badge in a suit, but you can get a name badge anywhere. And I started getting suspicious. Mm. And in the end, I left the, the, the cookies and sweets in the bin of the room and left the next morning. And then when I was leaving, the, another manager came up and said, oh, we hope you enjoyed the uh, cookies and stuff we gave you last night. And I was like, oh, no, I've already checked out. <laughs> But with the uh, Navani stuff, I mean, that really started with when we exposed the Scripple assassins because um, th- they turned up on Russia Today saying they were sports nutrition salesmen. But using this kind of rushing <laughs> data market, we'd already acquired their passport registration files, which were like stamped with the number of the Russian MOD and like had all kinds of really suspicious stuff on it. So we already knew there was something going on there. But based off that, we could actually we discovered they actually use a systematic way of creating their identities. They have the same first name, the same um, place of birth and the same uh, birth date. And we had access to all these leaked Russian databases that have just been floating around for years. So we kind of use that to search these databases with those three things, found a list of like a dozen potential people, found 11 of them on social media. And then that left us with, you know, one or two guys who didn't have those profiles, got their registration forms for passports, and it was the same guys, but it was their real identities. We looked into them, and they were both serving GRU officers. 
That then led us to a third suspect who was involved with another poisoning with eight other GRU officers of an arms dealer called Emilien Gebrev in 2015. And that was another nerve agent poisoning. But at the time, the local authorities dismissed it as food poisoning and didn't investigate it properly. But once we discovered this link, they did investigate it properly and found all sorts of CCTV footage of like <laughs> some guy walking up to his car the day before he was poisoned and kind of fiddling around with it. So that then led us to those guys' phones records, and we discovered they've been calling up scientists who worked at a um, lab that supposedly um, manufactured sports nutrition drinks. But they didn't um, they didn't have a background in sports nutrition. They had a background in Novichok um, manufacturing. So these and it was a group of these scientists with this kind of Novichok oh. experience. So um, we we um, had that we had Russia's secret chemical weapons program. Then in 2020, when uh, Navalny was poisoned, um, we checked the phone records of these same people. They'd been calling FSB FSB officers who themselves had been um, uh, following Navalny for 40 times um, since 2017, including the day he was poisoned. And we had phone records of them, travel records, all this leaked information. So we found that, figured out they poisoned Navalny. We then had Navalny call one of them up and trick him into confessing everything in a 50-minute co- phone <laughs> conversation by pretending to be his, like his boss's boss's kind of assistant. So we did that. That was a big story. And then we discovered um, yeah. at least uh, four more poisonings that we've published about so far, three of which were successful, one that failed. One was an um, uh, uh, opposition uh, leader called Vladimir Kuzmira. Uh, Maracosa. Um, and he was uh, one of Boris Nemstov's allies. He'd been poisoned twice into a coma in 2015 and 2017, and the team had been following just before his poisonings. We had three people who were successfully murdered, including two quite minor activists in the Caucasus regions who had been followed by the team just before they died, a member of the official opposition, Gosh. and we still have four more cases we're still working on. And we think that's just the tip of the iceberg. We just It's slow to work through all the material, so there could be loads more of these killings. So mm. we kind of the short version is we found Russia's secret uh, assassination program that uses a secret nerf agent program. Okay, so so I want to um, then quickly just move on to sort of what's next. Um, uh, in particular, in the book, you talk about a couple really interesting developments in in your area. One is uh, mnemonic. Um, can you just talk, t- tell tell us a, a little bit about that and and what you're building there? Um, yeah, so we've been working with a, a number of organisations um, over the years on tech projects, and um, we've been working with a group called the Syrian Archive, who renamed themselves Monomic Labs, who were collecting mm. videos from the conflict in Syria. And um, they've collected uh, over a million videos along with other contents, and that's a vast amount of information. But um, what we want to do is turn that into kind of more organized data because these are things like YouTube videos that just have like a YouTube description and when they're uploaded, but we don't have metadata like geolocation information. So what we'd yeah. like to do is build a volunteer section and that's what we're working towards at the moment where it'll be possible to actually um, put some of those videos from that um, archive to our volunteers and have them geolocate them. There's also other technology that's been de- developed that allows videos to be grouped together by similarity. So if a building is filmed from one direction and then appears in another video, right. they're connected. So you can actually have kind of networks of videos that are physically related to each other in physical space, give them to the group of volunteers to geolocate. And because they are similar locations, they actually have loads more material than they can use to geolocate this one more building. So you can have 50 videos of the same building that can kind of almost be geolocated in a batch. And when you're dealing with a million mm-hmm. videos, it's a lot quicker to do that than go 
video by video. Um, so our hope is that we're able then to create a kind of data-rich data set of these videos, which would allow you to basically set a geofenced uh, area on a map, you know, circle a town, set a date, and it will show you all the videos that have been tagged there on that date um, with the geolocation data we're providing. And for researchers into the conflicts, human rights, justice and accountability, it could be a very useful discovery tool for people who don't want to have to mm. sort through a million random videos. And you, and you talk as well about, um, I suppose, one of the, th- not a threat, but one of the, the things that, you know, um, could be a problem in the future is is trying to find ways to save all this data and keep it somewhere, uh, particularly in terms of, you know, you talk about the, the volume, there's a million videos collected from Syria. Um, it, so is that, is that a way of sort of preserving the history of this so that that, that history can be hopefully written in the most accurate way. Yeah, because this is a massive archive of information and we can't assume that YouTube will keep these videos online forever because we know they've deleted videos from the conflict before. A few years ago, um, they deleted hundreds of thousands of videos because they started using a new algorithm to detect kind of violent content and jihadi videos. And it picked up loads of videos from Syria. A lot of them were incorrect, you know, false positives. And these channels got free strikes because they had like 50,000 videos on their channels examined there'll be like three that kind of trigger the system and then right, reviewed okay. by someone who couldn't tell the difference between a jihadi and kind of like a normal Syrian rebel group because you need contextual information. And, you know, some people, they just don't know the difference, unfortunately. And um, then it triggers it, the channel gets banned. And that's, you know, 50,000 videos from the conflict in Syria just gone in a blink of an eye. I mean, in some cases, we they would get banned and we'd work with uh, the Syrian archive and, you know, talking to YouTube about this. They'd restore them. And then like a day later, they'd be banned again when the algorithm found three more videos. <laughs> there were some channels that were banned several times, even though we had them restored. And they were always banned for the same reason. I had my own personal chan- channel banned. And that included one video that wasn't even listed. Um, that just, it, it, and, and that included like all my playlists of like literally thousands of videos sorted by weapon type and all these details just gone in the blink of the eye and lots of people had been using those for research so fortunately i got it restored but it was you know it still wasn't easy to do and there's plenty of people you know syrians who are recording these videos some of whom you know are dead and you know don't have any way to you know look after their accounts in these circumstances and those videos could be lost forever so that really showed to everyone i think how important archiving this stuff off these platforms is for the future of kind of understanding conflict and analysis yeah and um and then a final i think sort of threat or something you see down the road is the the sort of rise of the the deep fake um and and combating uh or at least having safeguards against that how do you um how do you see or how what, what do you feel um open source investigation can can contribute to the rise of the deep fake um well to be honest i don't think it's an issue at the moment but the way we approach it is there's open source information as evidence and if there's a deep fake it's actually pretty easy to figure it out at the moment because you'd be looking for other sources if there's a video of a speech and someone's saying something you find the original video of the speech you look at the account that posted it so that's not hard to do the problem Mm. is if you tweet it fifty thousand people have retweeted it before you have a chance to do that kind of analysis so i think what we're going to see more is a kind of arms race between the tech companies who are developing deep fakes and the tech companies who are developing deep fake detection technology it's an incredible story from where you were just over a decade ago to where you find yourself now um 
what would you what would you say to someone who was perhaps where you were 10 years ago who was in a job that they didn't like and you had this passion or hobby or what would you say to yourself even <laughs> um what is it kind of taught I mean, you about yeah. passion and you know doing these kinds of things find something that interests you you know give it a go because i just started with kind of no idea before what i was actually doing and i figured this stuff out for myself but now you have loads of resources online and you don't have to always do a huge investigation and it doesn't always have to be something a million people read it can be just you know do it for yourself write something because you're interested in it and you want to learn more and think of it a way to build your skills you don't have to start geolocating ten thousand videos and figure out who killed who you can just take one video and say can i figure out where it was filmed and just that process itself and writing that up as well you know make a blog Mm. people don't have to read it but just give you the chance to kind of have that process makes you think about the process itself and how you explain that process to other people and always be careful not to make leaps of logic only write about what you can definitely see and definitely say not what you think you're seeing and then you know you'll be a lot more accurate and you'll be producing useful information that other people might come across and start using themselves in their own work and you can be part of a community that's doing that and i think that can be very positive um, to anyone who wants to try and do it that was elliot higgins there talking to me about his new book we are bellingcat which is on sale now and published by bloomsbury thank you for listening and if you enjoyed this episode please do leave us a review This podcast was brought to you by the team behind BBC Science Focus magazine. In the March issue, which is on sale now, we talked to Tim Berners-Lee about whether we can make the internet great again. We also look at the experiment that could bring hallucinogenic drugs to the NHS, and we dive into the plans to build a city on Mars. Of course, there's much more inside and on our website, sciencefocus.com. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.